Hope RUF can be a home for you here at UK, whether it's your millionth time coming here or it's your first time coming here. Uh, tonight, uh, if you don't know, we've, we're going through the parables of Jesus this semester. And in tonight's passage, like I said, Luke 12, 13 through 21, essentially, here's what happens. A man approaches Jesus and basically asks him to be an arbitrator of a family dispute over an inheritance that's up for grabs. And this was common practice, actually, for rabbis in the first century, for teachers like Jesus to be, you know, kind of uh, to arbitrate these disputes over who should be the rightful heir. But Jesus, right, in classic Jesus fashion, uses this moment to teach this man a lesson that he was not prepared to hear about greed. And so tonight we too are going to hear Jesus's challenge in the form of a simple story with spiritual significance. The parable Jesus is going to tell us is actually going to be essentially a negative example, right? Learn from this uh, foolish man, a negative example of what, a, of what foolish living looks like when it comes to uh, money, when it comes to time, talents, treasure. It will answer the question, uh, and this is really, if you're a note taker or whatever, this is really the big point we're going to camp on tonight. It answers the question, how do you become a poor fool? How do you become a poor fool? That's our big question for the evening. And hopefully, uh, by the way, my name is Nick Bratcher. I should have said that earlier. Um, my name is not Taylor Dosey, in case you were wondering from the Instagram today. Um, if you haven't seen that Instagram, uh, kudos to David and Anna for making it because it's just awesome. But anyways, okay. Sorry, a little scattered. Now, uh, our big question, how do you become a poor fool? Now, here's the thing. I know that you're all college kids, and so you're, thinking to my, you're probably thinking to yourself right about now, this is maybe the worst use of my time I can imagine. We're going to talk about money. I don't, okay, Nick, listen, here's the deal. I don't have any. Uh, I have negative money right now, right? Uh, Uncle Sam owns me and like my children's children, the fourth and fifth generation, right? Like I, don't, I cannot uh, begin to tell you how little money I actually have. I'd love to be able to be greedy. <laughs> I'd love to have money to be greedy about, right? That, maybe that's you here. Two things about this. First, <laughs> you don't have to have money to be greedy and to be in love with it. In fact, the lack of money can actually fuel an obsession with money. Uh, You can be broke and greedy, centering your life on whatever's going to get you the money and power that you seek that you lack, right? Uh, We're talking about a heart, Jesus is talking about a heart posture. Just because you haven't arrived at the, the barns full of grain does not mean that you aren't somebody who longs for that and is centering their life around that pursuit. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Second thing I'd say about not having money as a college kid, even if you don't have a mountain of money just yet, when we speak of greed, we don't just mean uh, your like actual treasure, your money, your actual dollar for dollar wealth. We can also talk in terms of your talents and your time as well. I mean, the truth is that sometimes these are even more valuable than money. You can't make more time. And uh, this has probably never happened to you, but if you were dating someone, right, and the guy sent $50 uh, to your table instead of showing up for your date, you would be like, what the heck? Some of you in here would be like, sweet, good riddance. I got 50 bucks out of this deal. It's good for you. But it would signal something about this guy's priorities and like where his heart is, right, if he just sent money. His time is actually the thing that you value about in that situation, right? It says something about him, how he spends his time, talents, and treasure these things reveal what we love, and it would be a lot wise to listen to Jesus. Even as he talks about money, you can substitute those other things in, right? How are you spending your, your treasure or your, 
uh, your time or your talents, uh, your abilities, your gifts. Uh, Before we dive in, let's pray and ask God to attend his word. Dear God, uh, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's jump in, answer our big question. Remember, it's how do you become a poor fool? I think it's on the thing behind me, maybe. How do you become a poor fool? Look at me at verse 16. Let's start at verse 16. Look at me there. Before Jesus has said anything about greed or possessions, he builds into the story, like into the story itself, a truth that all farmers know, that God gives our possessions, right? Uh, Notice he personifies the land. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. I don't know the last time you checked, but like the earth does not have a brain. It does not have the ability to actually do anything. But Jesus gives it that ability to, as a nod about how the earth creates. And even you know, a farmer knows at the end of the day, like you can't make something grow. You can water it. You can do lots of things. You can till a field. But at the end of the day, right, the, the land produces for itself. Jesus doesn't say that the rich man worked hard and acquired a lot of money. No, the subject of the verb is the land itself. He is a recipient of what the earth produces. Sure, you know, we can, you know, safely assume he worked at it, but there's nothing to indicate that the abundant result, at the very least, has anything to do with this farmer's, like, particular knowledge or, or uh, his skill, his effort. Jesus makes a similar point in Mark 4.26 he says, the kingdom of God is, if, is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. Uh, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When Jesus talks about a, a, how a farmer yields his crop, he uses the same analogy. The farmer can plant, prepare all he wants, but the yield of the harvest is ultimately out of his hands. He knows not how it grows. Where does the seed or the soil come from, right? Where does the rain that waters the soil for his field, where did he get that? Can you guys produce water out of your fingertips? Like, no, right? Like he's, the idea is that at some level, God supplies the things that he needs. Second Corinthians nine ten tells us that God supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. It just doesn't magically drop out of the sky. Amos 4, 7 says that God is the giver and withholder of rain. Jesus starts this parable with a key assumption that like, it's not unique to him. The Bible says it over and over and over again, and it's actually kind of obvious if we stop to think about it. God is a creator we cannot create. Right? Everything that we have, even if you fashioned it out of something else, like it was there before you and it'll be there after you, and you cannot make it for yourself. Right? God, possess, God gives us everything that we possess, and he takes away anything that we lose. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray for daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, right? It's God who ultimately will provide the bread. Yes, through the vocation of bakers and farmers and all these other people, but ultimately they didn't even make the stuff that they have been given. They've all been given it. This brings us to our first answer to our question tonight. How do you become a poor fool? Well, the first step to becoming a poor fool is that uh, you receive stuff. That's always the first step, that you receive stuff. Now, admittedly, this is also how to become a rich, wise person, is to receive stuff in the eyes of God. Both steps begin the same way, but it does tell us something important about how God wants us to think about money right from the start. 
It's not that having money or possessions or time or talents or treasure, right, is bad in and of itself. Rich and, and wise, poor and foolish alike receive from God. It's all given to us, no matter how hard we work for it or don't work for it. In the end, our treasure is a gift the Bible claims comes from God. Uh, in the uh, Lord of the Rings books and movies, uh, the, like a similar principle functions the same way. Uh, this is my first Lord of the Rings illustration. I promise not to do a ton of these. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, they're in this, you know, if you've never seen the movies or you've never read the books, essentially there's this one ring that is given to rule all these other rings, and it's this ring of power. And it can turn the person who wields it right, invisible, and it gives them lots of power, and they can, they can uh, destroy and dominate everyone else who, who has like, these other rings that are given out. Now, uh, the original purpose of that ring is actually to bring peace and order to Middle-earth, but it falls into the wrong hands, and then uh, this you know, horrible figure takes over the whole world and starts trying to dominate everyone else, and he uses the ring wrongly. And then finally, it ends up in this uh, little hobbit's hands named Frodo. And he decides he doesn't want to reuse the ring for that reason and actually uses it to get out of some tight spots and ultimately to destroy the ring and bring happiness and peace to Middle Earth, right? The thing is, the ring itself isn't the problem, right? The power isn't the problem. It's who wields it that is the problem. What's the posi- who is the one holding the, the, all the power and the money and the time and the talents and the treasure how do they use those things? Uh, this, this is far more indicative about uh, who, uh, how we receive the gifts, right? That is, how, that is what Jesus says matters. It's where our hearts are. It's a tool, right? How you use a tool. You can use a hammer to like hit somebody in the head with it, right? Or you can like hit a nail. Um, oh, you guys are like, why'd you go there first? Um, I mean, you can't, right? Here's, here's, here's the other assumption, right? We're all given these things, right? You have some amount of time. You have some amount of talent. You have some amount of treasure. Some of you guys are like, I don't know. Have you ever met me? Yes, I know. You have things to offer people, right? And the question is, how are you going to use them? As I said, this parable can extend many types of wealth, and we've all been given these things. How will you steward what you are given? The how is what turns is is what separates a, a rich, wise person from a poor fool, right? Everybody can be given things, but what do you do with what you're given? Let's look at verse 18, right? Here we start to see the fork in the road. The rich man decides how he will use what God has given him. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and, and my goods. The rich man has encountered a dilemma here, right? His fields have overproduced to such, ex- to such an extent, he cannot possibly consume all the grain in a single season that, he has, uh, that his fields have ye- yielded. As was customary at the time, right, he had some barns built, and they would store the grain in there through the winter until the next harvest. Uh, but his fields have yielded so much that his current barns can't hold all the crops that he has received from God. So he decides he'll tear down his existing barns and build larger ones. In this way, he can keep all the grain he's harvested right, for himself through the coming seasons, not just for one year, but for every year for the rest of his life. In fact, right, it seems he surmises that he'll be able to store so much grain that he'll never have to harvest again. He can kick back. Now, Jesus calls this man a fool, but if you're like me, that might be a little puzzling. 
as you read this story. If you think about it for a second, this man, uh, he's simply just like reached retirement, right? Like he's kicking back. He's moving to Florida, playing shuffleboard, hanging out with his buddies, talking about, you know, old times, right? Why isn't that a good thing? You know, you and I uh, think saving for retirement might be a good thing. We'd probably call him a fool if he like traded his grain for like an impulse buy, like a pair of sandals that promised like they could make you fly. You know, we'd be like, what an idiot, you know, or uh, did something else foolish with it. Like, um, you know, uh, built a statue of himself that he could show off to his friends. He'd be like, what? That's such a poor use of money, right? Maybe why didn't Jesus make it like that? He's just... You know, you can't eat sandals or a statue, but he's, he's investing in things for himself, maybe even for his family, right? These aren't vain things, but is saving for the, you know, is saving for the future foolish? Is Jesus making an argument against saving because, you know, uh, tomorrow's not promised. So you might as well just blow all your money right today, you know, every, t- every paycheck. Well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Again, the receiving is not the issue. It's what it does to the hearts of those who receive that matters to God. Look again at the story. It's subtle, but look again at the story, starting with the conundrum of what to do with the inheritance of the harvest in verse 17. The abundance of this harvest. It says this, And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This guy is obsessed with himself, right? Like he doesn't even tell, like he doesn't even tell somebody else's plans, doesn't have a financial advice. He doesn't even have a financial advisor. He might have to split his money with this guy if he, if he gets some advice, right? He doesn't act like a person who has received his things from the hand of God, but rather is focused upon what he has and how he can use it for himself. It's not that saving is bad, but like, why? Why are you saving? That's the question Jesus wants you to ask. Why are you doing the things that you do? This man isn't saving for the good of his family or to make wise financial decisions that will benefit other people. He is only thinking of himself. This man is a fool in the eyes of God because he does not think of his resources as being given to him for the benefit of other people. He thinks of his possessions as being his own and for his benefit. And this brings us to our second answer to our big question. How do you become a poor fool? Well, first, I, uh, I said you receive stuff. But the second step is to relish that stuff, right? Receive it and then relish it. Hold on to it. To treasure it as one's own for one's own pleasure. This means that biblical fools are defined by what, by what they have earned rather by what they have given, right? You think about the things you have as the things you've earned, not the things you've been given. They are entitled uh, fools are self-focused, self-made men and women who look out for number one. And honestly, more and more, I would say this, even in Christian circles, this mindset is subtly being praised, maybe not about money, right? We all know you're supposed to give your money away, right? Okay. Uh, but the, the idea, the same idea that's entrenched in this man shows up in our own lives. Uh, maybe you've always put your headphones on and never paid attention to this, but in the pre-fright, plea, uh, pre-flight announcements before every flight. They like instruct you like what to do in case of emergency, like the oxygen mask comes down. And they always say the same thing. They say, uh, if you're seated next to a child, make sure you put your own oxygen mask on so that way you don't pass out while you're trying to put on your kids. And this is like, for the record, it's very good advice. Always take it. Do not pass out while you're trying to give some other kid like a chance at life, right? But uh, the problem is that we tend to think of life 
like we're in an airplane emergency. Once I take care of myself and get myself squared away so that no bad things can happen to me, right? Once I've accumulated enough power and I'm fine, then I'll look to my neighbor, right? This guy says, okay, now I got my, my, my uh, once I can get all my barns stored up for myself, then maybe I'll, I'll help out somebody else, right? The wisdom of our age is that you got to put your own mask on before you help someone else. Go on your own vacation, have your own yoga time in the mornings, treat yourself to a manicure or pedicure. Uh, uh, what is, how does Tom Haverford put it? Um, Treat yourself 2011. You know, like this is like, this is the, this is the, that's the song of our age. Treat yourself, right? No one else is going to, so you treat yourself, right? And you know, our culture isn't wrong from its own perspective. Life is, in fact, really hard. This guy is kind of like, this is what we're talking about. This guy's kind of smart. Like you need a lot of grain. Who's to say that next, next year, the harvest is going to be as plentiful. If you store it up for multiple years, you got it all for yourself. You can make yourself safe. Uh, if you don't look out for yourself, who will? But the Christian ought to know better, right? Of course, life is still as hard for us as anyone. But if we are in Christ, Jesus has already secured our masks to us. We don't have to be fumbling with it. The truth is you've already been given your mask in Christ. Actually, that, that's not a good analogy. A better analogy is that not only has Jesus secured your mask to you, but he's given you a parachute uh, that he was supposed to have. He gave you his parachute, showed you how to use it, gave you extras to give to all your friends and family so you could tell them about how to jump out of the plane, helps them put theirs on as you fumble your way through it, and then safely ejects you all out of the plane as he keeps it going level and straight so you can all jump out and then he dies in the process. Like that is probably the closest illustration to this. And if you are in Christ, life is not a zero-sum game where it's either your stuff or other people, right? Uh, God has promised you in Romans 8, 38, that all things are working together for your good. And, and Paul roots that promise, not in just like God like has some like good feelings about you, but that Jesus has promised that with his blood. How could he who gave us his own life not also gracious, graciously give us all things? Right? If you refuse to serve other people who need your help because it will be costly, you become just like this rich man who is really a poor fool. Now the question becomes, why is that such an attractive option then? Right? Like if, if it, why, why is it so, why does it seem like such a good idea to hoard as much stuff for ourselves as possible? Why is it so tempting to relish our possessions as our own and use them for our own purposes? Why aren't we more charitable with our time and our talents and our treasure? Well, look at me at verse 19. The rich man continues his plan by telling us exactly why this lifestyle is so attractive. He says this, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Jesus, from the lips of this rich man, tells us that hoarding our resources is attractive because it provides the illusion of security and happiness. Right? They provide the illusion of security and happiness. This is what the rich man says. Because he has enough wealth, he can finally relax. Right? Because he has squared himself away, he can finally relax. Nothing can touch him. The future is not a threat. Nothing can assail him. He is secure. And on top of this security, he can consume these goods. He can, he can be happy. He can eat whatever he wants, however he wants, drink whatever he wants, however he wants, find happiness in whatever and however he wants. 
He is free to live the life however he believes will make him happy. No rules can touch him. These are two potent promises to the human heart, security and freedom. Right? We want to be free. We want to be secure. We don't want anything to tell us what to do or to impinge on us. And our time, talents, and treasures, they promise to buy these things for us. And this is particularly alluring for you as college students, right? That somehow, when you get done with, the col- when you get done with college one day, you're going to make enough money that nothing is going to be a problem for you anymore. Right? As soon as I graduate, all my problems are going to go out the door. I won't have to study anymore. I won't have to be anybody else's you know, peon. Like, I, I don't have to suck up to professors anymore. I'll get there and I'll get enough money and then I will have my own life and no one can tell me what to do. Not my parents, not professors, not a boss, nobody. I'm going to make my way in this world. And the truth is, I would argue uh, that uh, this means that everything ceases to be a gift from above and it's replaced for a crutch tomorrow. Right, a crutch for tomorrow. You tell yourself that when you can buy your security and freedom, then you'll be happy. But this is its own kind of religion, right? When you have faith in the promises of what money and time and talents and treasure can give you, right? Having faith in these promises, it sets itself as a rival to find our security and freedom in God and his provision for us. And look uh, how it ends. The worst part about this is that these idols will fail you Every single time. You will never make it out of this life totally secure and totally free. Because look at how it ends in verse 20 with this guy who has all the money in the world, has barns and barns and barns full of security. God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? If we're not careful, we'll miss the deeper question here. Right, the the obvious answer to the question, right? If, if it's not rhetorical, the surface question is like, well, I guess my son or my daughter, or whoever inherits the grain, is my next blood relative, right? But Jesus isn't asking that. That's not the question that he's getting at. What God is pointing out to the man is that the real, deeper, truer things that he has spent time preparing, his security and his so-called freedom, they are gone in an instant. They're gone now. Here we have a ma- the major thrust of the whole parable. When you work for yourself, yourself is all you got. And one day you'll lose even that. When we work for ourselves, when we selfishly strive for our own security and happiness, you will ruin the gifts that you have been given. Our time, our talents, our treasure, they're good things, but they are not ultimate things. They cannot bear the weight of our whole persons. When we use them to bring glory to ourselves, to find security and freedom, for our own desires, we usurp the glory that God, our creator, is owed for giving us those things and instead claim it for ourselves. And ultimately, the things this rich man has, has claimed, the things that he has built his life upon, they come all to nothing in his death. Death is the great equalizer, the ultimate, you know, everybody says this, you can't take it with you, you know. But if Jesus wanted to tell the story a different way, Right? He could have had the barn catch fire. The principle is the same. You can't hold on to that stuff. These things are not able to deliver on the promises they make. In the end, all your time, all your talents, all your treasure, everything that you've spent your life doing, they cannot support the weight that we're tempted to place on them to give us security, freedom, or power, or happiness. And this brings us to our third answer to our question, how do you become a poor fool? Uh, I said you become a poor fool by uh, receiving stuff, relishing stuff, and the last thing, ruining stuff. Right? If you do those two things, if you receive stuff and you relish stuff, you'll ruin it. 
And here's the question. Is there another way? Is there another, is there another way? Well, uh, you know, to, to receive things. How do I, how do I avoid this plight of, of relishing stuff? Because Nick, you're right, man. For all I know, I want people to be impressed by me, but then all it takes is one. I mean, everyone has a cell phone these days. It takes one slip up, someone recording, and you're on TikTok for 10 million people to see, and you are the laughing stock of the whole world, right? Like, it's, it only takes one. No wonder we're all anxious, right? Like, like this, is, this is the life we live. How do we, how do we steward our time, talents, and treasures in a way that doesn't lead us the same plight as this man? Uh, look with me at verse 21. Jesus identifies it in the end. In verse 21, he says uh, that we're supposed to become rich toward God. Now, how do we do this? How do we get riches with God that cannot be taken? Well, we're supposed to place our faith in Jesus to bring us the true fulfillment and happiness. You know, we're supposed to look to him, what he has done on the cross. Like not, we can't justify ourselves with enough time. We can't make ourselves safe by, by hoarding things. What we have to do, the only thing that God has given us is that he loves us and that is what gives us the security that we are longing for. And that we don't have to like hope that he loves us. I'm not asking you to like throw out a pipe dream that God cares about you. I'm saying that Jesus has already died in time for you and that he is never going to take that back. That that's how much he loves you and he is so sure about it that it's in his blood forever. He is resurrected and he is waiting for you to trust him. That's true wealth, to give up temporary treasure for an eternal one that you can never lose. That is where you find treasure. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, uh, I went skiing from time to time. And one time when I was still pretty little, uh, I don't know if you know this about uh, slopes or not, but if you're small enough, right, um, think about the physics of it. Uh, you can just like squat down and if you're light enough, you don't really pick up that much speed and you can just squat down and go straight down the hill. And that's basically how I tackled every hill when I was a kid. Uh, I can't do that on double blacks when you're like, you know, 200 pounds. But when you're a little kid, you just go down and you don't go that fast. You're just kind of, you know, and uh, that's how I, I, I went down every hill. But it did mean that while my parents were like zigzagging back and forth, I just went whoop right down the hill. It doesn't hurt very bad when you uh, crash either when you're like 60 pounds. So I get down to the bottom and uh, one of the expert skiers in our group is like an aunt figure in my life named Gail. She, uh, my aunt Gail, she was like, oh, I'll, we'll just ride back up to the top and we'll wait for your parents up there. They know like you're, you were going to be faster. So we'll go together. And I always loved riding the chairlift with my aunt Gail because guess what? She never did. She did not put the lap bar down. Right. That's that's it's glorious. You look at the wide open spaces and she never put the lap bar down. And she was like, you, you're fine with that lap bar, right? And I said, you know, like a grown-up kid, even though I was like six, I was like, oh, yeah, I've done this a million times. So she leaves the lap bar up, and I'm, we're, we're riding up to the top of the hill. And uh, the thing is, as we get on the chairlift, I noticed that there was like a, like a three-foot snowman, right, uh, like sitting right next to the chairlift. They like made a snowman. And he had like a fun hat on, a scarf and stuff. And I was like, that's pretty cool, man. And like the, you know, the chairlift comes behind you, sweeps you up. And I just keep looking. I just keep you know, looking at the, at, the, at the snowman and you see where this is going, right? And I keep looking at the snowman and then eventually the snowman is like above me and I am below it and I find myself hurtling toward it and I like crash into the ground. Now, luckily I was only like 15 feet up, but it was high enough that I'd gotten up out of the trees a little bit and my parents saw me like fall down. <laughs> like we're like, ah! you 
Peter like screamed out, right? Like, what happened? Right? Like, uh, and you know, my Aunt Gail got a good talking to from my father after that about putting the laugh bar down. Now, I tell this story, I tell this story uh, because, uh, friends, this is, this is what it's like when we get enamored by our gifts that God gives us instead of the giver. Right? We get focused on like a two foot, three foot tall snowman instead of the joy that skiing is. We spend our time and energy focused on, on something small and insignificant when the truly fun thing that is you know, skiing, that is building like a wealth that can never be taken from you. We get focused on trying to hoard little happy moments in our lives when the truth is for all eternity, you can invest in something that will never fail. It's like, it's, like watching a, it's like watching a snowman when the, the hill is ahead of you. We settle for what our time, talent, and treasure can bring us instead of resting in what has already been given us in Christ and then loving other people out of our abundance of riches. Man, guys, I, I want to encourage you tonight, lay hold of that. Like in your classes, in your time here at UK, when you graduate and you're tempted to think, once I get squared away and I get enough money, then I'll start giving to people, then I'll be generous or whatever. It will never be enough. You will never be secure enough. It will never happen. Instead, what I would ask of you is to think of all the embarrassment of riches that you have in Christ, that God loves you so much that he would give himself up for you. And know that that, out of that abundance, you do not have to be a poor fool. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for 